Here in the US, we have the first presidential election in four years coming up this November. The system we've used for decades, well, centuries, is the Electoral College. It's a complicated system, and it's much different from a basic popular vote. They initially uh, and quite explicitly rejected a nationwide popular vote twice. There was absolutely, there was very little dispute or very little question that we would actually have a popular vote for president in the 18th century. The Electoral College isn't a college in the sense of an educational institution, but rather a group of people tasked with the idea of electing the next president by voting for who the people they represent vote for. Three states specifically and callously manipulated the outcome of the Electoral College vote to throw the entire presidency into doubt. This week, our conversation is with Victoria Bassetti of the Brennan Center for Justice in New York City. Hear more from her as we dive into the political quagmire of the Electoral College, the history behind it, and why this group with no real restrictions decides the next president. The Electoral College. 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 For years, we hear the words Electoral College. As we all learned in 2000, elections are won and lost in the states and by the Electoral College, not national majorities. Well, the Electoral College is a group of 538 men and women who, on December 19th this year, will elect the President of the United States. Uh, hold on a second, you might be saying. I thought we were electing the president in November. And you would be mistaken, because when you vote in November, you are not voting for president. You're voting for another group of people who will vote for president. And those are the members of the Electoral College. So these are actually people that are voting on behalf of the U.S. population. Exactly. They're, they're basically our representatives for the presidential election, and each of the members of the Electoral College are selected on a state-by-state -state basis. So the way someone becomes a member of the Electoral College is to, let's say, for example, be a member of the Democratic or Republican Party in New York, be selected by the party to represent the voters of New York in the presidential election. And there's been 538 electoral college votes in America. So how many would a candidate need in order to win? So you'd need 270 votes in the electoral college to become president of the United States. And to, to kind of loop back, electoral college votes are allocated to each of the states, and they're allocated essentially in the way that we allocate the number of representatives you have in the House of Representatives and the number of senators you have. So New York has 29 electoral college votes. That's for the 27 representatives we have and the two senators we have. So the electoral college roughly represents a proportional allocation of votes by the population of each state, plus those two extra votes that each state gets because by virtue of their membership in the Senate. Uh, the result is that smaller states with smaller population get a slight finger on the scale in terms of representation in the Electoral College. So states like you know, South Dakota get three Electoral College votes. States like Wyoming have more Electoral College votes than maybe their population would strictly proportionally give them. So they determine it based on the population, and that population is done every 10 years. So technically, it could be a little off. Is there any way to do that, or is that just the way it's always been? Or We basically reapportion the House of Representatives after every census, so we'll have another reapportionment after the 2020 census, and after the reapportionment apportionment occurs, it sticks until the next census. 
So truly, why is there an electoral college? Why not just have a popular vote? Yeah, well, to understand that, you really need to go back to the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia to understand what the founding fathers were thinking. They initially uh, and quite explicitly rejected a nationwide popular vote twice. There was absolutely, there was very little dispute or very little question that we would actually have a popular vote for president in the 18th century. In, In part, it was because of the complexity or difficulty that there would be in holding a national election. It also reflected the fact that there were a large number of delegates to the Constitutional Convention who were highly doubtful about the, you know, vast masses, unwashed masses being able to vote for and select the president. There was a a member of the Constitutional Convention who said uh, it would be as unnatural to refer the choice of a proper character for president to the people as it would to refer a trial of colors to a blind man. They were very skeptical of the judgment of the people. So what they wanted to do was instead refer the election of the president to a, a, a more elite group of worthies, of you know, of valued men who understood the times and understood the people who were before them. There were, to be sure, within the Constitutional Convention, a large number of people who were far more accepting of the idea of mass democracy and mass voting. And so the Constitutional Convention and the choice of the Electoral College to a certain degree reflects a compromise between these two groups of people. And that's why they chose the Electoral College. They chose a a mechanism to reflect, hopefully, the will of the people, you know, a little bit removed, um, but uh, but also to kind of create a judgment layer between the people and the ultimate president. It sounds very similar to the delegate situation in the primary. Is that an apt comparison? It is a it's an it's an entirely apt comparison. It's it's very it's very comparable. Obviously, the uh, the Democratic and the Republican parties are private institutions, and they can you know kind of set the rules for the way they're going to nominate whoever their president is the way they feel like it. The electoral college is set in our constitution, so it's it's a little bit more rigid than the conventions, but it is very similar. So the Electoral College isn't bound to vote any certain way. They just have always kind of gone the way of the popular vote. Yeah, so when the Electoral College first started meeting in the late 19th century, the way electors were selected was each state legislature would select their electors. So there was no even popular vote for president of the United States. The legislatures picked the electors. The electors then decided who the president would be. It was very, very removed from any expression of popular will. Over time, and by the late 1830s or by the you know, like late 1820s, 1830s, there was a rising tide of democratic participation. And by 1831, virtually every state, every state but one, selected their electors by a popular vote of the people within each of the states. So that's how the electors are selected. Then you fall into the next kind of strange twist in the way the Electoral College works, and that's what's known as faithless electors. So even if you are selected to be an elector, even if you are a member of the Electoral College, and even if, let's say, your vote, your, your state voted overwhelmingly for a particular presidential candidate, you don't necessarily have to vote for that particular candidate that your state selected. That's known as the faithless elector. 
And it turns on whether or not the laws of the particular state in which you reside binds you to the outcome of the popular election in your state. New York does not bind its electors to vote for the outcome of the popular vote in New York. There are other states that do bind their electors. They either impose you know, misdemeanor penalties or fines or a variety of penalties on people for failing to keep their promise to vote for the winner of the popular vote. Despite the fact that not all electors are necessarily legally bound to vote for the person who wins the popular vote in their state, there has never been an election where a faithless elector actually impacted the outcome of the election. The last faithless elector was in 2000, and it was a a woman from Washington, D.C., who declined to cast her ballot in protest of the lack of D.C. voting rights. It had no impact on who ultimately won the election, and there's never been a case of that. With the upcoming election, there's many people who have expressed dissatisfaction with with presumptive nominees and the possibility of having someone they don't support. People, they generally come around, but could there be in the future, could that upset the Electoral College and the whole process if, say, they don't vote for the uh, presumptive nominee, but they decide to either not cast a ballot or vote for the other candidate? Well, in the modern political era in the United States, the uh, Electoral College is not easily manipulated. It almost always goes the way of the popular vote. There have been a few notable exceptions, and 2000 is the biggest one. Uh, That was an election in which Al Gore actually won the popular vote. You, You may think of the 2000 election as being about hanging chads and recounts in Florida. At an even higher level, and regardless of what happened with Florida, Al Gore won the popular vote vote by 500,000 votes, but he actually ended up losing the election because of the Electoral College. So the way the Electoral College works, it can result in three outcomes, if you will. The first is, you might have noticed the Electoral College has 538 members, so a tie is possible in the Electoral College. That's only happened once in American history, and that was in 1800. It's highly unlikely that it's going to happen again. The other thing that can happen with the Electoral College is that one person can win the national popular vote but lose in the Electoral College. That happened in 2000. It also happened in 1888. It happened in 1876. It happened in 1824. So, you know, there's a possibility for it. And then finally, there are what's known as the close calls, um, the ones where a few votes here or there might have flipped the outcome of the Electoral College. One example is 1976 when Jimmy Carter was running against Gerald Ford. Now, Carter won the election by approximately 1.7 million votes, but 9,000 votes, a mere 9,000 votes in Ohio and Hawaii could have flipped the election over to Ford. Then the final possible outcome in the Electoral College is one where no one gets the majority. No one gets to 270. That's also happened before. And it tends to happen when we've got multiple parties running, third parties, fourth parties, fifth parties. That's exactly what happened in 1824. But absent a third party to potentially garner large chunks of the Electoral College and deprive any one candidate of a majority of the Electoral College, the way the Electoral College works today in a two-party system, someone is going to win. In the case of a non-majority vote of 270, what would happen? Would it be just who got the highest amount of electoral votes? No. If no one gets a majority in the Electoral College, then the election of the president is sent to the House of Representatives. And then the House of Representatives votes, not all 435 of them voting individually, the House of Representatives votes as a state. So each individual state in the House of Representatives gets a vote. New York gets a vote for who gets to be president. Hawaii gets a vote for who gets to be president. Wyoming gets a vote for who gets to be president. And that's 
the end of the matter. And once again, you might note that there are 50 states, so there's the possibility of a tie within the House of Representatives. Uh, every time it's gone to the House of Representatives, and it hasn't gone to the House of Representatives since 1876, okay? But in the times that it has gone to the House of Representatives, it's gone to multiple votes over multiple days and led to utter chaos when it's managed to go into the House. We don't want people to get less than the majority in the Electoral College. So the Electoral College has 538 members who meet in December. So to understand the Electoral college, you have to do step one. How many electoral college votes does each state get? And the answer is each state gets votes based upon their population. So roughly the equivalent of how many members of the House of Representatives you have plus two senators. Step two, you have to ask yourself, who is an elector? So now that you've decided, say, for example, New York gets 29 electors, who gets to be an elector for the state of New York? And the answer to that is that they are selected at the party conventions that are held by the Republicans and the Democrats each year. So the Democrats select a slate of presidential electors. The Republicans select a slate of electors. Whoever wins the popular vote in New York, those people will become our electors. Then the final question is, how are their votes allocated? So we know that New York is going to have 29 electors in 2016. Whoever wins the state of New York, do they get all 29 of those votes? And the answer is yes. Almost every state in the union has a winner-take-all system. All 29 or 35 or however many of their electoral college votes goes to the winner. Hillary Clinton could win New York by one vote in the popular vote, but get all 29 of our electoral college votes. The exceptions are Nebraska and Maine, who actually split their electoral college votes amongst their congressional districts. And then there have been proposals more recently to change the winner-take-all system but with the exception of Nebraska and Maine, for the 20th century and 21st century, the electoral college system has been winner-take-all. So the Republican Party, during the primary season, they had winner-take-all, but the Democratic Party allocates it per popular vote within the state. So uh, Hillary Clinton won, say, 30 here, and Bernie Sanders won 27. So that way they could keep a closer, you know, more popular vote, but it seems that the Republican Party is a little bit closer to the Electoral College. Yeah, exactly. The, so, so party conventions, uh, you know, as you pointed out, uh, the Democratic Party conventions, which is very different than the Electoral College in, in a lot of ways and very similar in other ways. Uh, so the Democratic Convention allocates its delegates to the convention on a proportional basis. The Republican has a mix. Some of them are allocated proportionally. Others of them are allocated winner-take-all. The Electoral College, in contrast, is almost all winner-take-all. Once again, what it does is it kind of distorts or alters the campaign intensity and purposes of each of the candidates. And that's that winner-take-all system is part of what creates a swing state. So, for example, it really incentivizes a candidate to go grab those 20 Pennsylvania Electoral College votes or those 18 Ohio Electoral College votes, because if you win Ohio by one vote, you get all 18. And that's what makes the intensity in the swing states happen. And the reason the solid states, like a New York or a California or a Texas, stay with their winner-take-all Electoral College system is pretty simple. If you are a solid Democratic state with a Democratic-controlled state house, why would you give the enemy a portion of your Electoral College votes? You know it's going to go Democratic. Let's give them all of the votes. So are there any restrictions on becoming an elector? Our electors cannot be members of Congress or otherwise hold 
uh, positions within the government that's in the Constitution. So an elector actually has to be a, a person, you know, not a, not a politician. They're just random general members of the public, but could they be lobbyists? Per se. Uh, sure. There are absolutely no restrictions on who may who can be an elector or even how electors are chosen. So a state, Indiana, if it felt like it, could run a basketball tournament to determine who its electors would be. They could draw names out of the phone book. Now, that's not what happens. But there are no restrictions on who can be an elector. Uh, each state determines on its own how its electors will be selected. And by and large, almost every state has deferred to the parties who are running the candidates to pick the slates of electors. Has there been any actual uh, cases in the Electoral College throughout American history where the Electoral College has truly messed up the presidential election? Well, uh, the election of 1880, let me go through them. The election of 1880, the election of 1824, the election of 1876, the election of 1888, and the election of 2000 have been ones where the Electoral College has twisted or warped the Democratic outcome. So in 1888, for example, Grover Cleveland, the former governor of New York, actually won the popular vote. He won the popular vote by more than 500,000 votes. Now, he, he did actually happen to lose his own home state, so he didn't win New York's votes. Despite having won the popular vote the way the Electoral College played out, Benjamin Harrison won the Electoral College and was elected president of the United States. So 1876 is the one instance in which the Electoral College and its, its mystical workings dramatically altered the shape of American history. In fact, you might say perverted it. In 1876, it was the election of Samuel Tilden versus Rutherford B. Hayes. In that instance, when the Electoral College votes were counted, there was an asterisk next to the outcome from the electors of South Carolina, Louisiana, and Florida. What happened, basically, is that those three states sent rival slates of electors. So all of a sudden, the entire outcome of the Electoral College was in doubt. No one knew who the actual electors from those three states were. The election was then sent to the House of Representatives, which dissolved into chaos as they fought over who should actually be president. They ended up creating a special commission that met in, in a hotel called the Wormley House Hotel and very famously crafted what's known as the Compromise of 1877. In the Compromise of 1877, what happened is the Republicans who were backing Rutherford B. Hayes agreed to pull federal troops out of the South and effectively end Reconstruction in exchange for getting the Democratic votes to support their candidate to become president of the United States. They also cut a deal to subsidize some railroad construction out West. Uh, so it was a, an incredibly corrupt time in which these deals were struck amongst the parties in order to get their guy to become president. Rutherford B. Hayes was actually sworn in in secret. There was so much conflict in the streets. The result of the Compromise of 1870 though, is the end of Reconstruction and the beginning of Jim Crow. And it completely altered the course of American history, setting us up for the civil rights movement in the 1960s. So you could say that entire election was almost fueled by slavery and the end of slavery. Yeah, it was entirely fueled by slavery, and it was also fueled by the strange structure of the Electoral College. Remember, each state is the master of its Electoral College votes and determining the laws for how they're allocated, for how the electors are selected. And in the case of 1876, three states 
states specifically and callously manipulated the outcome of the Electoral College vote to throw the entire presidency into doubt and to also create leverage in order to end Reconstruction and begin sowing the seeds of Jim Crow and of the segregated South. Why 538 electors? (laughs) Well, uh, the House of Representatives is 435 people. It's 435 people actually set by law. So Congress passed a law in 1911 allocating and determining how many members of the House of Representatives we're, we're going to have. So 435 is the numerator. The population of the United States is the denominator. That's how many people each representative in the House of Representatives represents. So that's where you get the 435. 100 for each of the senators. So each state gets two additional votes in the Electoral College, and then three for the District of Columbia, which as a result of the 23rd Amendment, which was ratified in 1961, the District of Columbia gets three Electoral College votes. That gives you 538. Going forward in the way we are and the way we see the Electoral College today, is there really a reason for the Electoral College anymore? Well... You could say that about a lot of our constitutional provisions. There are a lot of critics of the Electoral College. As, as I noted, there could be ties. The the person who loses uh, the popular vote might win. There are also critics of the Electoral College who argue that it distorts the way we campaign for president and consequently distorts the policy priorities. Every single one of us has heard of swing states, right? And we know that then there are solid Republican states and solid Democratic states. We know that the presidential candidates basically take the solid Democrat or Republican states for granted, don't go campaign there. Maybe they just go there to raise campaign money, but they don't, you know, they just take For example, New York, solid Democratic state. It's 29 Electoral College votes people believe are taken for granted. And so the feeling is that your vote doesn't count in New York or California or in one of those, you know, or in Texas. And so people believe that it kind of distorts the way we campaign for president and that if we fixed that, presidential candidates would focus on people rather than Electoral College votes and it would make our system more democratic. By the same token, the fact is that it would radically alter the way we conduct presidential politics. It would have, abolishing the Electoral College would have implications that we we can't really forecast and can't really understand. So the question people have to ask themselves is whether or not the, the democratic imperfections of the Electoral College are so profound and so deeply wounding to our democracy that it's worth upending more than 200 years of the way we've elected president and upending it with consequences that we can't really foretell. I'm I'm no judge of that. That was Victoria Bassetti of the Brennan Center for Justice in New York City. Now, due to our new podcasting initiative, we have a new website called wamcpodcast.org. There you can go, click on the show you're looking for, and subscribe via iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. There's many ways to get our podcast. You can also listen online at any time. We just ask that if you like the show, leave us a review, give us a rating. I'm your host and producer, Patrick Garrett.